0: Go ahead and open up your Bibles to um, Isaiah 49. So we're going to look at a pretty big chunk of Scripture in Isaiah 49 tonight. And, and I want you to be reminded, you know, last week in the first few, few verses, really verses 1 through, I guess, 7, we were looking at specifically the calling of God's servant, right? And, and the calling of God's servant described through the mouth of the servant, right? Through, through the mouth of, of the Messiah, the one that would restore God's people to himself. And it was an answer to, obviously, chapter 49 was kind of the answer, the beginning of the answer to the great question that was before the exiles, that how could God restore His people to Himself in light of their sin? How could God bring them back to Himself in light of their idolatry, to Himself in light of their idolatry and their breaking of their covenant faith with God? Because, you know, here's the deal. Like we said before, the repatri- repatriation of the, of the Babylonian exiles into Jerusalem, you know, back to Judah... You know, that that's not redemption. Um, it was It's insufficient, right? A change of address doesn't equal a change of heart. Physical liberation doesn't equal spiritual reconciliation and salvation with God. So that's got to be accomplished by another means. And that other means is the divine servant, right? The Messiah, the one whom we know on this side of the incarnation and the cross and the resurrection to be the Lord Jesus Christ, right? And so Isaiah 49, beginning in verse 8 and following, kind of picks up the theme of the servant's work picks up the theme of, of, you know, how he is going to indeed make this happen. Now, he's gonna this is going to be developed over the next several chapters, but specifically here, we're going to see the work of the servant in restoring God's people become more developed in our understanding. We're going to see, you know, physical imagery used to describe spiritual realities. Okay, so we don't want to get caught up in the physical imagery here. We want to see it with eyes of, of faith the, the spiritual realities that are being described. And what we'll see here is that the restoration of Israel goes far beyond, you know, the return of the nation to the land from which they'd been displaced, right? It, it goes far beyond that, but it lays hold of future realities, really eschatological realities that far outstrip the return of the Jewish exiles, but really describes the ingathering of all God's people to himself from every nation, right? And the basis for it, the underpinning for it all, is this unending faithfulness, this unending love and compassion of the Lord for his people, okay? And that's where this is going to really start to be developed. You know, we've been looking at the holiness of God and the power of God as creator and the sovereignty of God, all great attributes, right? But now the focus is going to turn more to his, his faithfulness and his compassion, right? And we're going to, we'll see glimpses of the power and the might of God to deliver his people, not merely from earthly tyrants, but from the spiritual tyranny of sin and guilt and, and Satan. So this is a really good passage. And I want us to read it together. It's a spiritually rich passage that, that we need to see through spiritually enlightened eyes. So let's pick it up in verse 8. We'll read all the way through and then we'll pray and, and we will jump right in with verse 8. Look what it says. Thus says the Lord... In a time of favor, I have answered you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, come out, to those who are in darkness, appear. They shall feed along the ways. On all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst. Neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them and by springs of water will guide them and I will make all my mountains a road and my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar and behold, these from the north and from the west and these from this land of Sein. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion On his afflicted. But Zion said. The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child. That she should have no compassion. On the son of her womb. Even these may forget. Yet I will not forget you. Behold I have engraved you. On the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Your builders make haste, your destroyers, and those who laid you waste go out from you. Lift up your eyes around and see. They all gather. They come to you. As I live, declares the Lord, you shall put them all on as an ornament. You shall bind them on as a bride does. Surely your waste and your desolate places and your devastated land Surely now you will be too narrow for your inhabitants and those who swallowed you up will be far away. The children of your bereavement will yet say in your ears, the place is too narrow for me. Make room for me to dwell in. Then you will say in your heart, who has borne me these? I was bereaved and barren, exiled and put away. But who has brought up these? Behold, I was left alone from where? Have these come. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations and raise my signal to the peoples. And they shall bring your sons in their arms and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Kings shall be your foster fathers and their queens, your nursing mothers. With their faces to the ground, they shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. Can the prey be taken from the mighty or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? For thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you and I will save your children. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine. Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Let's pray. Lord God, when we read this text, it's clear that we need you to come and open up the eyes of our understanding and to open up our ears and Father, to give our minds wisdom to comprehend, Lord, what it is that you're teaching here. Um, Lord, we know that this goes far beyond the, the physical descriptions that, that you give to the, to the prophet Isaiah to pen here. But we can't rightly understand this text unless you help us. Father, we're dependent upon you. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come and be our teacher. That you who, have, who has authored this book would be its teacher and interpreter for us. Lord, I pray that you would give us wisdom and, and hearts that are hungry to receive your truth. And I pray that you would help me, Lord God, in the power of your spirit to glorify Christ before your people and to glorify your wisdom and your love and your compassion with which you have you know graciously ministered to us. Father, we are grateful that there is yet a future for your people. That this is not the sum total of our living. That Lord God, this world is just an anteroom to the wonders of eternity. And that you know collect, you know Clothed in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, in Christ by faith, we have a hope that far exceeds our our ability even to understand its greatness. How awesome you are and how, how worthy you are of our praise. And Lord, how unworthy, but how grateful we are for your blessing. Just please come and bless us now and instruct us and teach us for your servants have ears to hear. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I want to jump right in at verse eight. I don't want to waste a whole lot of time because we waste a little time at the beginning of you know the service. But you know, I want us to see here, you know, we've been hearing the servant's voice in verses one through seven, and now Now we come to the voice of the Lord speaking to the servant. It's the voice of Yahweh speaking to his servant, right? The father speaking to the son, the Lord God speaking to the Messiah. And notice what he says again with me in verses eight through the first half of of verse nine, where he describes here the servant's work. He says, thus says the Lord in a time of favor, I have answered you in a day of salvation. I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land. To apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, come out to those who are in darkness, appear. It's really not hard for us, I don't think, to see the Christocentric you know, imagery in these first couple of verses. Right. The idea is that in response to prayer, in response to the crying out of, of the servant. Right. That the Lord promises that he will give answer. He will answer and he will give strength to the servant to do all that is necessary to accomplish the ultimate salvation of his people and to bring them out of spiritual desolation, right? To establish the land, to give them an inheritance among the people of God, to serve as the covenant of God with his people. Now, I want to really underline that, okay? I want to emphasize this idea of I will give you as a covenant to the people, right? It's important to see here that the covenant is a person. The covenant, right? The new covenant that the Lord is describing here is is summed up in a person, right? Now, there are aspects to it, right? Jeremiah talks about it. We'll look at that in a second. But but the, the covenant itself is summed up In a person, in the Lord Jesus Christ, in the divine servant. He is the covenant keeper on our behalf. He is the covenant with God. And in proper relationship to Him, we receive the blessings of His faithfulness, right? United to Him, we then are united to God. And when I read that, I can't help but think of the great high priestly prayer in John 17, right? Right? Because so many of these themes are like they, they come out. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I just want to read a few of the statements that the Lord Jesus Christ makes there, right? John records this for us. He says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Right. We see the prayer there. Right. The request and the, the, the obvious response that the father made in sustaining Christ for all of this. And then he continues and he says this. He says, I have manifested your name, your character, your person, your, your glory right? to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were. How? By eternal election, right? And you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. And now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And this prayer is made for this reason, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be, what? In us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me. That they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Christ is the personification of the new covenant, right? And in him we are brought into the enjoyment of the new covenant, right? He established that new covenant, how? With his blood. He ratified, you know, the new covenant of which Jeremiah spoke with his blood. Jeremiah talks about in Jeremiah 31 saying, and, and, and you know, knowing what you know from Isaiah, this makes complete sense. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord, more this new covenant there won't be any half covenanters in there right there's not going to be any that 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 hear the covenant covenant and give external allegiance to that covenant but whose hearts are not truly changed he's speaking of spiritual zion we'll look at in a little bit He's speaking of the true kingdom of God. He's speaking of the people of God redeemed by Christ. And all that work. God promises to empower by the Holy Spirit to uphold and to honor and to exalt because that's His eternal purpose. That's His glorious will. In fact, look, God will save His people and to that end the servant will do this. He will say to the prisoners, come out. And to those who are in in darkness, appear. That sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? That phrase, what it does, it looks forward to the year of the Lord's favor that will be described later for us in chapter, you know, 61, the Jubilee of the elect soul. And in particular, it's the very thing that the Lord Jesus Christ quoted in Nazareth as the Messiah's manifesto, isn't it? You remember his words at the beginning of his earthly wisdom, right? After he had been tested in the wilderness, after he had overcome the temptation of Satan, right? And he goes to his to his hometown, right? And immediately on on the heels of his victory over Satan, Luke records for us he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was, as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What would he do? He said to the prisoners, come out to those who are in the darkness appear, right? And so we see here with spiritual eyes, the very heart of the Messiah's work described in short form in verses 8 through 9. And moreover, I want you to notice this. The Lord says of those whom the Messiah would save, starting in the second half of verse 9, this. He, He describes their pilgrimage, right? He says, They shall feed along the ways. On all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst. Neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them. And by springs of water will guide them. And I will make all my mountains a road. And my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar and behold, these from the north and from the west and these from the land of Syene. Again, I want us to remember, right? The Lord is using physical imagery here to sp- point to spiritual realities. What would destroy anybody's pilgrimage? Well, the lack of food, right? Hunger being, you know, suffering heat stroke, you know, not having water, not having shelter, all of those things, right? Right. And these descriptions here of food along the way and pasture on bare heights and no hunger or thirst protection from the scorching wind and the sun, you know, roadways appearing in the mountains and raised highways. They all speak of provision of protection of guidance of an established and formed pathway. What it really points to is to the servant as a shepherd to unfailingly bring all of God's people to him. That's the idea. The point that's being made here is that there's no barrier that will prevent God from unfailingly delivering his chosen people. And we might come along different routes, right? We might, you know, you know, through, come through differing trials or hardships. We might come by various ways, right? Our stories are not identical. But the shepherd is the same, right? The shepherd's the same. And what's more, those whom the Lord has chosen, look, they'll come from afar. They'll come from all regions of the earth, from all ethnicities, from all backgrounds, from everywhere. Even, here's the idea, from the most remote or unknown to man, Syene. No one has a clue for certain where that land even was. But Isaiah throws it in here. Or the Lord does through Isaiah, right? Why? To show us that places we don't even know about will give up God's people. And in light of such a great salvation, look what the Lord does. He commands all creation to rejoice. Sing for joy, O heavens and exalt. O earth, break forth mountains into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. Right? Now here's the deal. Get this, right? The redemption of the Lord, this bringing of salvation through his chosen servant, ought to bring forth is to bring forth jubilation and exaltation in the heavens and the earth. But notice why. And again, it's a departure from what we've been reading. The celebration is not because of God's power or might as creator. It's not because, you know, all these things I have formed and by my hand I've stretched out the heavens, as he says earlier. Right. The focus here is not on on, you know, his omnipotence as sovereign sustainer. Or, you know, not even his holiness, though he is indeed three times holy, right? Holy beyond measure, but rather there to burst forth in praise why? Because of the Lord's compassion. Because of His active and unfailing love. Because of His faithfulness. Because He has indeed comforted His people. The comfort that the servant brings in the name of the Lord. They're to rejoice because of the healing of, of His chosen people's affliction. That's the idea here, right? Now all of Creation is to join in that. And we know that all creation now groans, right? Looking to the day of the revelation of the sons of God, right? Because the redemption of creation is tied up in our own redemption, isn't it? But The point here, the focus is on God's compassion, right? How enduring it is. You know, it's interesting to me that the way that the Lord delighted to reveal himself to Moses was along these very lines. You ever think about that? You know, John and I were talking about this. You know, when Moses, when, when Moses cries out to see God's glory, right? And God's like, well, you can't see my glory or you die, but I'll put you in the cleft of the rock and you can see my goodness. And he passed by him, right? And then he declared what was true about himself. I think it's very interesting that the way the Lord describes himself is in terms of his relationship to his people. Isn't it? Remember, he says this, the Lord, the Lord... A God merciful and gracious. Right? Slow to anger. Abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the children's children. To the third and the fourth generation. The interesting thing to me is that the bulk of his revelation here. Is in terms of. His unfathomable kindness and mercy and grace to his people. I think we got to be careful to view the Lord in the way that He presents Himself here, right? I think we really do. We need to really spend time. Fo- I think it's easy for us. And John, I was talking about that in the Reformed tradition, it's easy for us to focus on holiness or on, you know, omnipotence, or on sovereignty, or on God's transcendence and His majesty. And listen, don't get me wrong. Those are all good and proper things in which to rejoice and to worship. But a lot of times we will do so at the expense of forgetting His steadfast, patient, enduring love. The forgiving heart of God. His mercy and His kindness. We sometimes, I think, we can do this. We don't mean to. But sometimes we divorce God's grace from His everlasting and steadfast love to sinners like us. We say, like, well, God is gracious, right? And then we almost make it a dutiful thing for God to be gracious to us. And it's not. It comes from a heart of love. God's not obligated to be gracious. And I get it, you know, we, we respond viscerally to the lessening of God in our culture, right? To the reduction of His character that's so common in this day, right? It, you know, like the God is just kind of reduced to this touchy-feely teddy bear in the sky or, you know, some life coach or some whatever else, you know, it just makes us want to, you know, hurl, right? And we respond to that viscerally and rightly so, but, beloved, we got to be careful we don't swing too far the other way. God doesn't grudgingly love His people. I want you to, I'm going to say this. God does not grudgingly love His people. The Father did not does not force the Son to love His bride. God doesn't grudgingly love His people. It's not like He, he pinches His nostrils in the face of our stench, you know, and, oh, I just got to love Him anyway. It's not that God loves his people with an unfailing and an unchangeable love. Then at the heart of the work of the servant is eternal love, which lives to forgive and redeem and restore. Let us never forget that. You know, when we, when we talk about one of our favorite verses or our favorite text in Ephesians chapter 2, when we're talking about how salvation is the gift of God and not of, not of works, lest any man should boast, and we want to emphasize the sovereignty of God there, let's also be careful to emphasize this, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Right? Let's keep the two balanced. Let's keep it balanced. So here's this awesome announcement, right, of this, of this servant. It's not finished, though, because you know what the Lord does? He goes on to address the disbelief of the Jewish exiles. And, and he does so by personifying, you know, heavenly Zion. This is so cool the way he does this. And the question, of course, is this going to include them? And so he speaks to their unbelief with compassion and mercy. And he points to this glorious future that's, that's, that's yet for them. Look what he says. Starting in verse 14, it begins with this lament, right, by Zion. He says, but Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Okay, now let's stop for a second. Because in our study of Isaiah, we know that, like, Zion is a code word, right? Like, we know that, 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 that there's a lot, there's a code that, as it regards the word Zion. Zion does not primarily or only refer to the city, the physical city of Jerusalem or the physical inhabitants of Judah, right? It speaks of the heavenly Jerusalem, right? It speaks of the kingdom of God. It speaks of spiritual Israel, spiritual Judah, those who bear the name of God in faith, right? And here's what's going on. Look, it was true, right? It was true of earthly Zion, the city of David, Jerusalem. It was true that that earthly Zion lay in ruins, right? Right? When when the exiles are receiving these words from, from Isaiah, it, it, it laid in ruins. The nation was shattered. It was wrecked. It was destroyed. And though earthly Zion was forsaken by God, it was not forgotten. It would be re- resurrected and repopulated, right? But here's the thing about earthly Zion. Even though it was resurrected and repopulated, neither it nor the temple ever regained its former glory, did it? It didn't. Israel really just kind of limped along as a third-rate nation. But from her would come the Messiah promised by God, who would, praise God, establish the heavenly Zion, the greater Zion, right? The kingdom of God. And so in that way, Zion was not forgotten or forsaken and forgotten by God. Instead, through the servant, the true Zion would be established forever, right? Here's why. Because the Lord cannot and will not forget His promise to save a people for Himself. A people that He foreknew and foreloved before the foundation of the world. He will establish His kingdom through the redemption of rebels and sinners through this great servant, right? And the true Zion will be far greater than even the earthly foreshadowing of David and Solomon's reign. That's saying something. I've been reading through Kings and I was reading through the glory of israel in the time of solomon and the description is almost breathtaking like donald trump had nothing on solomon <laughs> everything was made of gold so much so that silver became like rocks in worth you know like
1: yeah
0: oh you got some silver yeah. throw that in the garden you know it's no big deal i want us to see what's in view here right the eternal Zion who seems to be bereft of anybody like, look, everybody's, you know, the exiles, the, 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 the Jewish exiles have been, you know, transported off into Babylon. And, you know, the majority of the nation's a bunch of heathens. And where is there ever, ever going to come a people to occupy the heavenly true Zion? Where is that going to come from? Right. And so the eternal Zion, God personifies here as a woman who feels forsaken and forgotten. Right. And yet far from forgetting, look what the Lord says in verse 15 through 18. He says, can a woman forget her nursing child? That she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Your builders make haste. Your destroyers and those who laid you waste go out from you. Lift up your eyes around and see. They all gather. They come to you. As I live, declares the Lord, you shall put them all on as an ornament. You shall bind them on as a bride does. See what's being said here? Just, this is really... Though, though even the sweetest of earthly relationships can be severed. That between a mother and her child, Right? God cannot forget his people. He remains unchangeably faithful and loving and kind to all the objects of his affection. And moreover, he testifies to this by saying that he has engraved his people on the palm of his hands. Now most commentators will say there's, a, there's kind of a two-fold thing here. One is, obviously, the, 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 the allusion to Christ and the piercing of his hands for our, for our salvation. But there's an ancient Near Eastern picture here that I want us to see, okay? That I think is, you know, I I can see that might be a little more allegorical than I like to lean toward, but there's an ancient Near Eastern picture here that is very clear. In the ancient Near East, the name of a master would be engraved or written on the slave's hand in order to remind the slave of his obligations to his owner. And God turns that on its head. Here, it's the names of God's people graven on his hands as a reminder and a sign of his obligation to forever love and bless them. That's the picture. And the building up of his people as, as his Zion, these walls are continually on the mind of the Lord. He will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He'll drive away those who would destroy his people. He will gather to himself, to Zion, to heavenly Zion, all that belong to the Lord. And he lives to see his Zion, heavenly Zion, beautified as a bride through all those that are brought unto her. And as to the future glory of spiritual Zion, the Lord says, in verse starting in verse 19, Surely your waste and your desolate places and your devastated land, surely now you will be too narrow for your inhabitants, and those who swallowed you up will be far away. The children of your bereavement will yet say in your ears, This place is too narrow for me. Make room for me to dwell in. Then you will say in your heart, Who has borne me these? I was bereaved and barren, exiled and put away. But who has brought up these? Behold, I was left alone. From where have these come? The Lord pictures Zion here as a woman who's both a widow and barren. Right? Therefore, with no hope of offspring at all. Right? Utterly bereft of hope. Desolate and devastated. And in truth, that was the case of earthly Zion, of earthly Jerusalem, right? Right? It seemed impossible that the Lord could establish His eternal kingdom considering all that earthly Zion had devolved into. But Christ's kingdom is not of this world, is it? Is it? It's a spiritual and eternal kingdom that awaits a full consummation and revelation. But using physical imagery, the Lord points to the spiritual truth. When all those who are brought in, who belong to Christ, are brought in, spiritual Zion will burst at the seams. To the believing Jewish exiles, to those who hope in the Lord, who seem a pitifully small number, God will add an innumerable host and they will be astonished at the number that make up spiritual Zion. God is not done. He's not done with his elect in the nation of Israel. And he's not done gathering his elect people from throughout the Gentile world and grafting them into the promises of Abraham and making them all together the family of God. Something far greater than earthly Zion had ever been. It's an awesome promise. Well, how's that going to happen? The Lord tells us. Verses 22 and 23. Thus says the Lord God. Behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations. And raise my signal to the peoples. And they shall bring your sons in their arms. And your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Kings shall be your foster fathers. And their queens your nursing mothers. With their faces to the ground. They shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. Here's how it will happen. I'll lift up my hand. I will... I will beckon them. I will draw them to come to me, to come to you. And I'll do it by raising up a signal to the peoples. You remember this imagery before? Do you remember where we saw it? I saw it back in Isaiah chapter 11. You remember? Prophetically speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, you know, being raised up. That word signal, that banner, it was used of a flag that would be raised in order to gather all the troops or gather all the village around, right? That signal or that banner. And here, the Lord personifies that banner as being the Messianic ruler himself. And all the people, Jews and Gentiles included, will be drawn to him to seek him and to gather around him, right? It's why the Lord Jesus Christ said of himself and I when I am lifted up from the earth will draw all people to myself. Right? True Zion is going to encompass the world. Not just Israel or Judah. And the description here is remarkable. Right? Zion. Spiritual Zion will see her sons and daughters brought safely into her. Kings and queens of the nations are pictured as fathers and mothers. Caring for Zion. Prostrating themselves before her. Joining God's people right those who once mocked the true people of God will join her bringing with them children from around the world and and in fact they will come and lick the dust of your feet that sounds kind of aggressive doesn't it how are we supposed to understand that obviously not literally right we're not going to start a new tradition that whenever anybody gets saved and baptized they lick the feet of everybody in the congregation Kind of gross. We're not doing that. But it's not really as harsh as it sounds. It sounds kind of harsh, but it's not as harsh as it sounds. This was, this was a Hebraism to describe the conventional posture of submission to a sovereign. Okay, And here it signifies a complete change of attitude. A change of attitude from oppression and trying to, trying to keep down the, the growth of spiritual Zion to, to you know service and maybe the best i think illustration of that is saul of tarsus right the apostle paul when he was confronted you remember by the lord jesus christ on the way to damascus we read in verse in acts chapter 9 as he went on his way he approached damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling on the ground he heard a voice saying to him saul saul why are you persecuting me and he said who are you lord and he said i am jesus whom you are persecuting But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. And what was his response? What was his response? He was to lay down his arms and do exactly as the Lord said, and become a servant of Christ to love and serve those whom he had formerly labored to destroy. Think about that. The greatest of the apostles, and to be blessed along with them by suffering for the sake of Christ. Now, here's the truth. Although the final consummation of this picture is yet to come, it has already occurred to some extent in the Christian era. Hasn't it? We are seeing people from every tribe, nation, and tongue sing. We are seeing people from every strata of society being being saved. It is true that kings and queens have actually bowed at the feet of Christ and spent their wealth for the sake of Zion. They have. From around the world, Zion is... You know, found descendants from every race and every people. And that's because God's promises are trustworthy because he's the Lord and he's the architect and he's the giver of salvation. And so it's for that reason he can say with certainty like this is only the Lord can say this. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. Those who wait for me will not be humiliated or disgraced. They won't be bewildered or confused. They won't be disappointed. No one else can say that. You can't say that to anybody you know. Put your trust in me and you'll never be put to shame. You can't say that. I can't either. That's why, you know, Paul picks up that same thought in Romans 11 when he says, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved, right? And that leads us to this final thought. God is mighty to save. And He's also mighty to judge. Pick it up in verse 24. Verses 24 and 25. He says, Can the prey be taken from the mighty? Or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? For thus says the Lord, Even the captives of the mighty shall be taken, and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you, And I will save your children. Again, physical imagery begets spiritual reality. In a physical sense, right? right, Here's the questions. Can prey be taken from the strong and powerful? And more than that, can the captives of a tyrant be rescued in righteousness or righteously rescued? That is what... The, the heart of the, the meaning of the Hebrew is behind this phrase that's translated captives of a tyrant be rescued. The idea is not just can they be rescued, can they be righteously rescued? Not just stolen away, right? Can these things be done? And the answer to that, these questions is yes. The prey can definitely be, be delivered if the deliverer is mightier than the predator, predator right? And the captive can be righteously delivered from the tyrant if the appropriate price is paid. God says, Even the captives of the mighty, again, shall be taken and the prey of the tyrant be rescued for I will contend with those who contend with you and I will save your children. We know that's true in the physical sense because we see it demonstrated for us in the restoration of the Jewish exiles to Babylon, right? But that's just a feint. That is just a feint infinitesimal glimmer of the greater reality right because the greater enemies of God's people are not earthly rulers or harsh conditions the greater enemies of God's people are sin and death principalities and powers and Satan himself and with all these praise God Jesus Christ The servant of the Lord has contended and he has crushed them for our sake. Christ has come and He's made an end of sin and its dominion over His people in His body on the tree. He canceled the record of debt that stood against us, our guilt with its legal demands. He set it aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to an open shame, triumphing over them. He conquered death through the resurrection from the dead. He came to destroy the one who has the power of death, that is who, the devil, and He did it. And soon he will fully and finally crush him under his feet and cast him into the lake of fire. He has conquered every enemy of his people and he's done it in perfect righteousness. That's the point. Again, like Paul writes in Romans 3, For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by grace, his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith, And then he says this, this was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Only Christ can righteously vanquish all of our enemies and He does without compromising the holiness of God or ignoring the reality of our sin. He's rescued the children of Zion, those once held captive in the prey of the tyrant. He's broken down every power that enslaved us with His mighty and righteous right hand. He's shown His faithfulness. He's shown His love and a display of undeserved grace and kindness because He brings out... I want you to think about this. Man, He brings... He brings out of the rubble of sin a new life of which we could never have conceived. Isn't that true? He's the Lord. and He won't allow those who trust in him to be put to shame. Zion will be built to the eternal praise of his glory. He's mighty to save, but he's also mighty to judge. And we see that in the last verse. He says, I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh. And they shall be drunk with their own blood, as with wine. And then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. This is graphic imagery, right? It's siege imagery, like when a, when a, when a when an army would come and lay siege to a city, and and that city would be reduced to eating, you know, their own flesh and drinking their own blood. We we see that we that that cannibalism, right? in and real history but the point is this is that those who continue to resist God and who continue to seek to oppress his people will consume themselves by their own sin they'll experience the self-destructiveness of sin under the eternal loss of their souls because God won't be mocked and in their pride they'll perish in their sins and bring themselves a just and a thorough judgment but through the salvation of his people and the consequent judgment of his enemies, all will know in the end the invincible strength of God's commitment to his people and to his glory. That's what we're reading here. All flesh will see, and we in particular will rejoice that he is the Lord our Savior and our Redeemer and the Mighty One of Jacob. Let's pray. John, will you pray for us, bro? Dear
1: dear Heavenly Father, you are... So good and merciful to us. A fallen and sinful people. Yeah. God, when we chose to sin against <coughs> you, we chose to fall away. We chose separation from you, Lord. And you, in your divine sovereignty, had already engineered a way for us to be restored with you before creation. God that was that you sent your son to this earth the sin filled sewer Lord in Christ died for us he purchased us with his blood Lord now his righteousness that he attained through his his life and his death has now been imputed on us and we are so grateful how could we not Lord, you have have saved us from the pits of hell. You have led us out as the good shepherd. Yes. God, because that's who you are. And like Psalm 23 says, Lord, I pray that would be our heart. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. For your rod and staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Anoint my head with oil. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me for all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Lord, you have already done it all. Lord, you've already done it all. Christ paved the way and he is leading us now. All we have to do is follow. Lord, I pray that as a church you would align our hearts with that song. Lord, that he would be our leader that we would follow. We'd forsake everything for the sake of Christ. So Lord, I thank you for this time. I pray that it was beneficial. Lord, I pray that it brings a real change. Lord, I pray that it causes us to bear fruit and to grow in the likeness of Christ. Lord, that our hearts... Disposition that our hearts would be pointed and focused upon you and you yes. supremely, you alone. Because yeah. you alone get all the glory, whether we like it or not. So, God, I thank you for enabling us to be able to glorify you. And I pray all these things in Christ's holy and perfect name.
0: Amen. Amen.